And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me... And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no longer anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's ask God to help us as we take just a couple of minutes this morning and study his word. Please join me in prayer. Father, help us this morning as we look to this part of the scriptures to believe that it is historically accurate and verifiable, to believe that it is relevant and meaningful for our lives, to believe that it actually, in these words, contains the power, the power to make our lives different and new, the power to produce in each of our individual lives a turning point where we will never be the same. Will you do that work among us this morning by the Holy Spirit? And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every story has a turning point. Every story has a place in the narrative where an event occurs after which things will never be the same. For example, in Harry Potter, 
perhaps the turning point is when Cedric Diggory is killed at at the end of the fourth book and Voldemort, the evil Voldemort, appears again in human form. After that, there's no turning back. Things will never be the same. This week, there was a new trailer, a new preview came out for the new Star Wars movie, which I watched no less than 400 times excited about it, and even in that trailer, there's a little hint from one of the characters that in the story, his life is going to face a turning point. One of the characters was raised to be a stormtrooper, one of the bad people's army, and he has some sort of awakening with the force and decides to leave his life as he had known it, and there's a turning point, clearly. I can't wait to see what happens in that book. I might even, or in that movie, I might even watch it in this theater right after church in a few weeks. Um, You're welcome to join me for that, by the way. Star Wars Episode 7. Every story has has a turning point. Every event, you know, every 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 part of our lives at some level or another has a, a transition. That's one of the things we love about stories is how the turning points come and sometimes they surprise us, sometimes they overwhelm us, sometimes they make us sad, but they definitely don't leave us as readers or as recipients of the story where they found us. You know, each of our lives has a turning point as well. Um, Maybe when you got married or when you became a parent for the first time or the second time or the eighth time. Um, Those are turning points. I'm going to... Thomas, thank you. Sorry for the static. Um, Maybe the turning point in your life was when you moved to a new place or when you bought your first house. All of our lives, just like all of the stories that we love, have turning points. One of the things that I love about Christianity is that Jesus Christ wants interaction and encountering him to be one of the, if not the major turning point in your life, in your own story. He wants you to experience a watershed moment, a life-altering change that results when you trust him with your own life. Now, this story that we just read in the middle of Mark's gospel is the turning point of this entire book. This entire letter or gospel that Mark wrote, this history of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, it's no accident that this is the story that comes in the dead center of Mark's gospel. From now on, after this point, after Peter's confession and the transfiguration, the theology of Mark's gospel becomes the theology of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From now on, everything changes. You know, you could say that the first half of this story that we've been going through week by week has been out to show us, Mark has been out to show us, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king that we all have been longing for, even if we might not know it. But the second half of Mark's gospel, from this point forward, is going to show us that Jesus is the king who is going to a cross. Jesus is a king who is going to suffer. We found out who Jesus is, and now we are going to see what Jesus came to do. And it all changes, it all begins, it all starts here with this passage. The turning point for the disciples in the Gospel of Mark begins here. And my prayer this week has been that perhaps as we think a few minutes about this story this morning, God might bring a turning point in your own life when it comes to knowing Jesus. Let me try and summarize the main idea like this. The turning point in each of our lives comes when we trust, when we trust in and follow Jesus Christ. It's very simple. The turning point in each of our lives comes when we trust in and follow Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show you three things from this passage that I find each of which to be remarkable that I think God wants us to understand clearly. I want to show you the confession 
the invitation and the revelation, okay? The confession, the invitation, and the revelation as we see that the turning point in each of our lives is going to come when we trust in and follow Jesus Christ. So first, let me talk to you just for a couple of minutes here about the confession. We see that there in verses 27 through 30. Jesus, we read, takes his disciples north to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he sort of asks them what the rumor mill has been saying lately about him. You see what he says there in 27? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples respond, right, with various answers. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you're another one of the prophets. But then Jesus personalizes it. Jesus makes it personal. He asks them, okay, that's fine. I understand what the gossip is, but who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? And Peter gives one of the most important answers, one of the most important verses in all of the scripture. He gives a confession Like when we have a confession of faith on Sundays in church, what Peter is doing here is stating something that he believes to be true. And he's pictured here, by the way, as a spokesman for all of the disciples. He's kind of like the press secretary of the 12 disciples. He's speaking for all of them when he says, here's who I think you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. That's a turning point statement. After this, nothing is ever the same. It's a really, really important thing that Peter says here of Jesus. So what does it mean? Well, that word Christ is not Jesus's last name. Like my last name is Evans. The word Christ is a title rather. It's a title that was very prominent in the Old Testament Jewish world. Christ is actually the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. And so when Peter here says that Jesus is the Christ, what he is confessing is that Jesus of Nazareth, this man that he has been following, and this man that he has seen do miracles and teach with authority, this man is the anointed one. This man is the king. But he's not just any king. Peter is saying that Jesus is the king. He is the long-expected one. He is the one who had been promised. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the king who is going to make all things new and heal all that is broken. You see, Peter here is making a statement about Jesus, a confession about Jesus that marks Jesus as the king of kings, as the deliverer, as the chosen one. Peter and the other disciples recognize in this instance the true identity of Jesus. He is the Christ. Finally, you know, after eight chapters at this point, we as readers are supposed to say, yes, that is who he is. It's all been building up to this moment. It should be clear. He does things that only God can do. He says things that only God can say. He is God himself, the promised king, come into our world to heal all that is hurting, to mend all that is broken. It's the turning point in this story. And it's the turning point in many ways for the disciples. Listen, the turning point in their lives came when they rightly identified who Jesus is. And it's important for you, each one of you, and for me to understand that the same is true for each one of us. Listen, to have a turning point in your life, to experience change, 
to experience hope and healing, you must confess the same thing about Jesus that Peter does. In order to experience the life of joy that Christianity promises, you must correctly identify Jesus. And to fail to see Jesus rightly results in a failure to see your own life transformed. There's a British evangelist and pastor named Rico Tice who tells a story of one time when he was in a London pub waiting for a seat at a table so he could eat dinner. He was waiting for some minutes, and there was a a young man in the waiting room with him who looked sort of vaguely familiar. Have you ever had an experience like that? He looked vaguely familiar, but Rico couldn't quite place him in his mental catalog of people. He had blonde hair, and he was a pretty good-looking guy, and... um, As he was waiting, he sat there just sort of looking at him awkwardly, I guess, like British people do for a few minutes, obviously not going to say anything, pretty, you know, downcast and quiet. And eventually, um, a coterie of people that, you know, were armed and dressed up like Secret Service agents come and said, our table is ready, Prince, Mr. Prince. And it turned out that it was Prince William right there waiting with him. He just hadn't identified him, which is amazing to me that he didn't know who he was, but he couldn't quite place him. And so he sat there looking like a bump on a log awkwardly for the whole three or four minutes, which at that point I'm sure felt to him like 30 or 40 minutes. The ability to identify someone when they are in your presence can oftentimes be extremely significant. That's what the disciples do here. They identify Jesus rightly. They recognize him for who he is. They confess him. They confess what is true of him. And so the question that's inevitably pressed upon each of us is, do you? Do you recognize Jesus? Do you confess him to be the Christ, the son of the living God? You know, one of the things that I think helps us see Jesus as the Messiah as God himself, as, as the true king, is the way he presents himself and handles himself throughout the gospel stories. You know, think about it. If you're familiar with the gospel, even as, as we've been going through Mark, you might have noticed this. On the one hand, Jesus says some things that are just radically egocentric. I mean, he talks about himself constantly. And yet, on the other hand, he doesn't do it in a way that drives people away from him. He rather does it in a way that continues to invite people in. That's extremely unique. You know, have you ever been around someone that talks about themselves all the time? Normally, that is a recipe for rejection in relationship, right? It drives people away. We don't want to have anything to do with the people that are self-infatuated, that are completely focused on their own egos, on talking about themselves all the time. And yet Jesus does that. He says things about himself that no one else would be able to get away with in any sort of normal social setting. He says, before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean? I mean, who says that? He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the true light who's come down from heaven. That's not something that normal, regular people say. And if they do say something like that, they're not going to have any friends, much less any disciples around them for long. But Jesus can say this in a way that's not infuriating, that's not supremely annoying. He says these things about himself, and it doesn't drive everyone away. Rather, it draws people to him. He can make these seemingly crazy claims, you see and still be balanced, still seem to be concerned for others and helpful. You know, part of the question is, what kind of a person can do both of those things? 
Only someone who is supremely confident in his own identity and ability. One theologian has written this, the strange thing about the egocentricity of Jesus' claims is that stark as they are, they are all directed at our welfare. You know, it's as if Jesus is saying, I'm the greatest, like Muhammad Ali. But he's not like Muhammad Ali because he says, I am the greatest and look what I can do for you. Look how I can serve you with my greatness. He says, since I'm the bread of life, you can be satisfied. Since I am the light of the world, you don't have to live in darkness. Since I'm the giver of eternal life, we can share eternity with him. Since I'm the forgiver of sins, we can have our guilty consciences dealt with. Since I am the judge of the world, we need not fear the judgment day. You know, it's as if Jesus is like a a skillful surgeon who comes in right before he performs an operation and says, it's no big deal. I've done this operation thousands of times. You don't have to fear. You know, that's kind of an egocentric statement, but because it's factual, it fills us with confidence. Do you see Jesus in that way? That's part of the question Mark wants you to answer. Do you see him rightly? Are you able to make the confession about him that Peter does? You are the Christ. The moment at which you can do that in faith represents a turning point, a turning point in your life. We see the confession. Secondly, we see the invitation. So Peter nails it, A plus on this one question exam. You are the Christ. And then Jesus naturally does something and says something that we would never expect. Look at what happens there. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must take over the world and ride in on his white horse as the crowning king. Is that what it says? No. See how many of you are paying attention. He says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders and eventually die, die, be put to death on a cross and after three days raise again. And Mark makes a point to tell us in 32 that Jesus said these things plainly. Jesus doesn't respond to Peter's answer, to Peter's confession by saying, that's right, Peter, let's go storm the castle in Rome. Let's take over. It's time for a political revolution. Let's do this. No, Jesus begins to tell them that he's not the kind of Messiah that they expected. Think about it, okay? What kind of a king does that? What kind of a king, when he's finally got a guy that understands who he is and what he wants, begins to say, actually, I'm going to have to die? Peter doesn't get it. Peter has an agenda. He wants a Messiah who's going to conquer and who's going to take over. Which is why Peter, right after getting an A+, plus, here gets like an F-, minus, 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 minus. You don't ever want to rebuke Jesus, right? Well, that's what Peter does. He takes Jesus aside and in a moment of extreme arrogance, begins to rebuke Peter. He begins to, to G, rebuke Jesus, and he begins to rebuke him because it becomes clear that Jesus' agenda is different than Peter's agenda. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter right back. We see there in verse 33 when he says famously, get behind me, Satan. You know, it's as if Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, but I am going to rule in a way that you do not anticipate. I am a king who is going to suffer. I'm a king who is going to die. And then he invites He invites his disciples, and he invites you and I. 
to lose their lives as well. He gives an invitation. And that's the second thing that you have to understand in order to have a turning point in your life. You must confess who Jesus is, and then you must be willing to base your entire life, your entire identity on him. That's what Jesus is getting at there in those pretty stark and difficult words in 34 through 38. Look at what he says. If anyone would follow him, if anyone would be his disciple, 34, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. 35, if you're going to save your life, first you must lose your life. So Jesus is here saying that the only thing we can really do to find our lives is follow Jesus in the path of losing our lives. Jesus is saying that we must not build our identity, our sense of self on gaining things in this world. Look at verse 36. We must not build our identity, he's saying, on our achievements, on our families, on our freedom, on our legacy, on our children, on our culture, on our money, on our performance, on our respectability, on our careers. We must only build our identity on Jesus. He says clearly we must be willing to give up everything else by which we self-identify and identify with Jesus primarily if we are ever going to have a turning point in life, if we are ever really going to live. There's a confession from Peter and then there's an invitation from Jesus to take up your cross, to die, to in a sense lose yourself so that you might find yourself. And so a fair question to ask is why, right? Why does Jesus think it's necessary for us to lose our other senses of identity and identify, identify solely in Christ and in Christ's life? Why is that so important? That seems pretty radical, doesn't it? It seems pretty crazy. There's no room for sort of lukewarm Christianity here with Jesus. He's saying if you're going to experience a turning point, if you're going to experience change, much less if you're going to be my disciple, then you must take up your cross, deny yourself, lose yourself. That is a baseline requirement for following me. So why? Well, here's why. Listen. The reason is because in the gospel, Jesus shows us how much he loves us. You see, in the gospel, Jesus was even willing to, for a time, lose his identity at the cross in order to give us a new identity for free by his grace. You see, through the death of Jesus Christ, you and me are forgiven. We are now identified primarily as sons and daughters of God, as his beloved children. When we are believers in Christ, our whole orientation in life is fundamentally altered and changed. Jesus is saying, identify yourself based on what I have freely given you, based on what I have done for you. Why? Because if you identify yourself on anything other than that, on anything other than me or my gospel, if you refuse to accept Jesus' invitation to identify yourself in him and in him alone, you are going to inevitably end up hurting, broken, devastated, and disappointed. If you attempt to build your identity on anything other than Jesus and his gospel, then the life and death of Christ for you, it will eventually crush you. For example, if you 
build your entire identity on your children and on them being successful and happy later in life, you are going to eventually get crushed because they are inevitably going to disappoint you with their own sin, with their own mistakes, with their own making a choice that you wish they hadn't made. If you build your entire identity on your career and anything goes wrong with that job, your life falls apart. If your entire identity is built on your performance or your reputation, then you spend huge amounts of time, right, trying to hide away all the things about you that are unseemly so that you can maintain your reputation. And you actually end up in misery because it takes so much work to hide the things you don't want anybody else to see because you're identifying yourself on being known as a good achiever. Only when you see the Son of God, Jesus, loving you, only when you are moved by that in a visceral, existential way, do you begin to get a strength, an assurance, a sense of your own value and distinctiveness that is not based on what you're doing. It's not based on whether somebody loves you. It's not based on whether you've lost weight. It's not based on how much money you've got. It's based on what Jesus has freely given you. And so you are free. Your old approach to identity is gone. You see, Jesus is inviting us to lose our own attempts to make our lives worth living and trust that he makes it worth living through his love for us. He is inviting us to see him as the only one that can, we can truly base our lives on and receive the satisfaction and the peace and the purpose that we also desperately want. No one, in my opinion, outside of the scripture has put this better than C.S. Lewis in the very end of mere Christianity. Here's what he writes. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him everything else thrown in. See, that's the invitation that Jesus is offering to us. If we want to experience change, if we want a turning point, we must confess who Jesus is. We must identify him rightly, and then we must accept his call, his invitation to base our lives solely upon him and his gospel. So the turning point comes when we confess like the disciples do, when we accept the invitation to identify ourselves on Jesus, and then thirdly, when we see the revelation of why Jesus came. To put it another way, we have to understand his identity, we have to understand his call, and we have to understand his purpose. That's just a part of what's happening here in these final verses, these famous verses about Jesus' transfiguration, but it's where I want us to focus for now. So real quickly, let me plow through this as we try to make this last point, the revelation. See what happens. Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle up to the top of the mountain, 
and he's changed or transfigured or metamorphosized. That's the literal word before them. We read there in verse 3 that his glory shines forth. He becomes radiant. You know, it's so radiant that it's clear that no human could have done it. It's so white that no one on earth could bleach it that white. And then Moses and Elijah appear. And Jesus speaks to them. And one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, by the way, is what Peter does here. I mean, this is classic. Great understatements of Scripture, volume one. Jesus, it's good for us to be here. I mean, Peter, A plus, F minus, 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 and then is there a G or an H? Because that's like where Peter is here. He doesn't really understand his place. I mean, Mark's gracious to Peter because Peter is Mark's mentor. And so he says they were terrified. He didn't know what to do, but he can't keep his mouth shut, you know. He's one of those guys that just verbally sort of throws up anytime he gets the opportunity. And that's what he's doing here. But Jesus is gracious to him. Peter doesn't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden in verse 7, a cloud overshadows them. And a voice comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, there's a lot going on here. Let me just summarize it like this. What's going on in the transfiguration is this. God is revealing to us that in Jesus Christ, we see the dawn of the final age, the coming of the kingdom. By the way, that's why Moses and Elijah are there. They represent the fulfillment of the hope of God's people, the yes to all of God's promises. In Jesus, we see the grand happy ending to all of the stories. How do we see it? Well, here's how. Here, Jesus reveals to us that through him, access to God is open to us. Now, think about it. If you know your scriptures well, which some of you do, some of you don't, that's okay. In the Old Testament, anytime someone kind of goes up a mountain to meet with God, it's a terrifying experience. I mean, it's crazy. The scriptures tell us again and again, no one can see God and live. And so when Moses in the Old Testament comes down from the mountain after being with God, when he receives the Ten Commandments, his face, we read, is, is radiant, kind of like Jesus's, but it's sort of a reflective radiance. It's radiating what he had experienced with God. Jesus is, is an originating radiance. It is the glory of God itself. And what we see here, the point, is that these three disciples are, they're in the presence of God. They see the glory of God revealed to them, and they live. They don't die. I mean, Peter's reaction is more evidence than we need that these three men have no right to be in the presence of a holy, pure, radiant, almighty God. According to all that these men would have known of the scriptures, they should have known that to be in God's presence with our unholiness, with our impurity, means instant death, instant rejection, instant getting booted out of his presence. But that's not what happens here because in Jesus, in Jesus, the revelation is that access Access to the face and presence of God is again freely granted to sinful, rebellious, unclean, impure people like Peter and James and John and Luke and you. You see, Jesus is showing us here that although no one can see God and live, Jesus, who is God himself, died so that we might enter again into the radiant, beautiful, glorious presence of God. 
You see, what's happening in the transfiguration is, is this. Sin has so driven a wedge between us and God that we cannot even be in his presence without death falling on us. That's what should have happened to the three disciples here by all rights, but that's not what happens. Instead of God ushering a statement of judgment, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen. Listen to him. Here's the point. Through Jesus, we can enter into God's presence, not as his unclean enemies, but as his beloved children. Through Jesus, we can access the beauty and the majesty and the very life of God personally. And that can happen because Jesus died to rid us of sin and impurity and to give to us the righteousness that we need, his own righteousness, to approach God. You see, Jesus bridges the gap that exists between us and God due to sin by taking our sin and its guilt upon himself and giving us all we will ever need to be forever, God's friends and family. And Jesus does all of this for free by his great grace. Mark wants us to say to ourselves after reading these verses, how wonderful is that? How beautiful is that to have life in the presence of the life giver? To have access to the source and fountain of all blessedness? To have total security and forgiveness through Christ's work? That is why he came. He came to give us life through his death. He came to make us blessed by God by becoming cursed by God. He came to take what we deserve so that we might receive what he deserves. You see, that is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the revelation. It's why he came. And when you experience and understand that by faith, for you, it can be the greatest turning point you will ever know. Are you willing today to confess that Jesus is the Christ, to accept his invitation to lose all other things by which you identify except Christ alone and to see him for who he is, the one who brings us back into God's family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to send Jesus to not just declare himself to be the Messiah, but to then go to the cross and die as our substitute in our place to shed his blood for our sins, to take all that we deserve because of our rebellion against you and bear the punishment of it, to wipe away our guilty status through his death for us and then to be raised from the dead so that we might have life. Father, we ask that that message, that good news, would be believed upon by all of us so that it might represent for us a turning point, God. Help us to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Help us to be willing to lay down everything else and take up our cross and follow him, for that is worth it. And help us to see him as the one who grants access again to you and to your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.